Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, again, my name is Luke. I'm uh, one of the pastors and part of our preaching team. Uh, thanks to those of you who are joining us online. And uh, I also have up here, he didn't leave yet, uh, Seth Trout is here. Uh, and uh, we're going to kind of experiment today with a little bit of a team teaching thing. So he's not just like standing up there uh, looking very critical, uh, live tweeting things I say. He's not doing anything like that. Uh, but we're going to kind of, uh, we had some fun with this when we were doing just the online services. And we thought, you know what, it'd be fun to maybe kind of incorporate some of that even uh, now that uh, it's different again. So we'll see. Maybe this will be the last time we do it, Seth. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, all right, here's a question. I think the answer is probably yes for most of you. But have you ever seen a Marvel movie? Yeah. Ever seen a Marvel movie? Seth, do you have a favorite Marvel movie? No. Okay. <laughs> I, need seen, more, I need more time to prepare you've than seen that. a Marvel movie. I have seen a Marvel movie. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to keep doing this, by the way. Otherwise, my... I would just have you come here. We'll do that later. I'll keep right? my mic off. You've That's seen a Marvel fine. movie. If you've seen a Marvel movie, you've seen this guy. You know who this is? This is uh, his name. Is, some of you are saying it. His name is... Stan Lee, not Stanley, Stan Lee. And Stan Lee is uh, the creator of the Marvel Universe, right? So he was the one that kind of dreamt up the Marvel characters and the comic books and all that sort of stuff. And what's interesting is in every Marvel movie, he, he has since passed away, but uh, in every Marvel movie while he was alive, he made an appearance. And so it's kind of this like Easter egg that gets hidden in all of these little Marvel movies. Oh, where's Stan Lee going to show up? And so he would show up at different points. Uh, and, and this is relevant to this passage that we're looking at today. Because listen, if, if the author of a story is going to show up in the story, it's because the author puts himself there. Right? If the characters in the story are going to get to know the author, the author has to get to know them. They can't just get to know the author, and what's interesting with Stan Lee is he shows up in all of these Marvel movies, but he never shows up as himself. He shows up as a character. And so even though you see Stan Lee, you don't actually get to know him. You just get to know whatever character he plays. Contrast that, though, with Jesus. What we find in this passage today is that the author of the story, the creator of the world, enters the story and enters the story not playing some other character but enters the story playing himself. It says in verse 14 of John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. With Jesus, we get to see God and we get to know God. Now, just to review, we've been saying that this Gospel of John, which we're studying over the course of this fall and into next year, is really like a finely crafted documentary, that John has not just sort of uh, kind of randomly gathered all of this video footage of Jesus' life and just sort of thrown it against the wall and made it stick. No, no, no. John is like this finely uh, crafting documentarian who is taking all of these things with a purpose uh, to help us know and love Jesus. And let's just stop for a moment and acknowledge in these days, our only hope is Jesus, right? I mean, th that's it. Like, you just look around the world and you look inside and you feel all the anxiety you feel and you see all the anxiousness and anxiety and anger in the world and you just go like, if I'm looking out there or if I'm looking in here for hope that's gonna last, that's gonna endure, <laughs> I'm coming up dry. Our only hope is Jesus, which is why we're going to spend all this time to talk about Jesus. And what we said was that John 1.1 through 1.18, those first 18 verses, is like this kind of prologue or overture, this introduction 
of the God who came near. Now, here's the problem with this idea that, that God came in the flesh, right? See, because for a lot of us, especially those of you who are followers of Jesus, or maybe you grew up in the church, I realize not everybody did. So for some of you, this whole idea is like really new. Wait, 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 wait. How could, how could God be in the flesh? And, and, but for a lot of you, it's like, yeah, well, of course God came in the flesh. His name's Jesus, duh. Right? That's how you feel. But here's the problem with that. This is such a profound truth that can become so familiar that we forget how important this is, right? Because if you are newer, you're looking at this and going like, wait a minute, really? How could God, who spoke everything into existence, who knows everything, who is everywhere, who can do all things, right, all those big omni words, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omni, what's the other one? Potent. Are you listening? Okay. <laughs> He, I think he's listening better than you are. My, my mic was off, so I had to, I'm oh, slow I on the draw. See, I didn't see your lips move. Anyway, he's omnipotent, right? How can the God who's all of those things be born in a manger? Live, like grow up just as a regular kid? And be such a normal person that when he shows up later to his hometown, they don't believe he's God? Like, you realize this, right? Jesus was not voted most likely to be God in high school. When he shows back up to Nazareth, they're like, that's Joe's kid. He's not, what, what is he doing? That's how normal Jesus was. And yet he's God in the flesh. And so it's such a profound truth that, that we're actually bound to misunderstand it. And if you look at especially the history of the early church, the major doctrinal controversies, the major false teachings, what you might call heresies, were almost all heresies around Jesus being both God and man. And what's interesting is, even though a lot of us would go, yeah, that, that's been settled for me, there are actually some pretty significant uh, errors that existed in the early days of the, of, of the Christian faith, that are actually still bumping around today. And so what we're going to do actually here is, is we're going to teach you the, kind of the big idea of this passage and then kind of unpack these false teachings that existed back in the early days of the church and still are kind of around today. And so that's what we're going to do. So here's our big idea today is that in Jesus, God came near as an embodied revelation of his steadfast love and faithfulness. Let me read that again. In Jesus, God came near as an embodied revelation of his steadfast love and faithfulness. So we're going to unpack that big idea, and then we're going to push into those misunderstandings and see if we can even see how it connects here today. So let's pray, and we'll look at the first part of this big idea. Father, uh, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for coming near to us. God, even in that big idea, there's the, that word revelation, and we ask that you would give revelation today, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty of Christ, so that our heart's desire would be to fall in love with him and experience him, and that we would be more like him, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, well, the first part of that big idea is this. In Jesus, God came near as an embodied revelation as an embodied revelation. If you have your Bible, look at it with me at verse 14. 
The first phrase I want to look at here is, and the word became flesh. Now, uh, you got to go back up to verse 1 where John talked about the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word is this logos. And, and again, you can go back a couple weeks where we talked about this, but John is using this loaded term from Greek philosophy and saying all the things that the Greeks hoped in, Jesus is the fulfillment of, them, of that even though they don't know it. And the Word was how God created everything. And, and he's saying, hey, Jews, Jesus is the fulfillment of, of who God is as, as creator. And so verse 14 is a radical statement. The word, that eternal God, became flesh. The theological word we use for this is incarnation. Incarnation. And the simplest way to understand this is that it's God con carne. You ever had chili con carne? chili with meat. God with meat. Incarnation. God con carne. Jesus. And the word became flesh, it says. And the next phrase is, and dwelt among us. This word dwelt is a really interesting word. It, it is the idea of that, that God tabernacled among us. Now, that's significant because when you read Exodus, the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where God meets with his people is in the tabernacle. My wife grew up in a large family. She's the oldest of five kids, and I don't know if it was this way with all of her siblings, but for her, whenever her dad wanted to have a really important conversation with her, there was one place they would go. And some of you from the Midwest, you might have been to a restaurant like this. You ever been to a big boy? Big Boy restaurant, or you've seen that maybe in movies or something, Big Boy. And so anytime there was like an important decision to make, an important crossroads, uh, an important kind of lesson to learn, it was like, hey, Molly, let's go to Big Boy. And they would go to Big Boy, and they would meet, and they would have this important conversation. And in many ways, I think my wife could look back at those Big Boy restaurant meetings and go, those impacted the trajectory of my life. The place where you met to have an important conversation was Big Boy. Well, for the Jews, the place where you met with God, to hear from God, to know God, to experience God, was the tabernacle. And so here's what this is saying. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Heaven meets earth in Jesus. The presence of God comes near in Jesus. The place where you see who God is, is in Jesus, which is why the next phrase makes sense. It says, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Now, I think what John's doing here is he's, he's drawing back on a story that the Jews would have been very familiar with, that story of the Exodus. This is a story that we looked at sometime in the last year or two, I guess. I don't know. Time. Has anyone else lost track of time since, uh, the, since the Rona? Okay. Anyway, I'm, I'm lost on it. But go to Exodus. Actually, you don't need to go there. We'll put this on the screen. I'll go there. Exodus 33, and verse, starting in verse 18, uh, Moses is meeting with God, and here's the question Moses asks, or the request. Moses says, please show me your glory. That's Moses' request. Show me your glory, God. God, I've been hearing your voice. I've been seeing you work. But show me your glory. I want to, I want to see the, the splendor of your being. 
Verse 19, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, so just understand what's going on here. Moses is saying, God, show me your glory. God, I want to see you. And God goes, sorry, bud. You can't see me because you won't survive it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just tuck you in to this little nook and I'm going to cover you up and I'm going to go by and you're going to kind of see my backside and that's like the most of my glory you can handle. And then God reveals himself in the next few verses. In Exodus 34, it says, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. And here's what those words were. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now get this, this is all part of God still answering his question or his request to see his glory. And here it is, verse six. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Grace and truth. So when John says in John 1, we have seen his glory Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What is he saying? He's saying, we've seen God, right? This God who Moses couldn't, Moses just barely got to see little glimpses kind of of his glory. We've seen him face to face. And if you want to understand the steadfast love and the, and the, the loving kindness of God, the faithfulness of God, you've got to see Jesus. One of my professors in seminary, Mike Williams, writes this. He says, the God of all creation, the God who measures out the heavens in the span of his hand and sifts out the galaxies as you might sprinkle sand on your evening meal, had long ago determined that there was but one way that his sin-scarred world could be cleansed of the corruption of sin. God must become man in order to suffer the penalty of sin and guilt. God must come embodied in history and as the one who saves. So think for a moment about what this says about God. This says that God has a desire to have relationship with his people. God was not happy with just the arrangement of what he showed to Moses. He wanted to show more. God wants to be near us. And then think about what this tells us about humanity, that God came in the flesh. God didn't come as an idea. God didn't come as a philosophy. God came as a person embodied. What does that say? That says that there is dignity to being human. Because think about this. Jesus became flesh. He took on flesh and he'll never take it off. Ever. 
He is permanently, eternally, forever embodied. He rose embodied. That's the significance of the resurrection. It wasn't just that his soul ascended, his body resurrected. Which means that God wants to be near us and that humanity in our physical reality is important. So that leads us to the first kind of false teaching that we want to look at here today that kind of cropped up in the early church and that still lives on. So Seth, uh, go ahead and stop torturing you back there. Uh, come on up. And uh, this, this first heresy, this isn't the first heresy necessarily of the Christian church, but this was an early one, is the heresy of docetism. So Seth, tell us about docetism. What is it? Well, docetism is, uh, it comes from the Greek word dikeo, which means to seem or to appear. And it was about these, so the Greeks generally had a really low view of what it meant to be um, a human in the flesh. They had a, this view like the spirit was good, the body was bad. And so they could not possibly wrap their mind around the fact that God could take on flesh because for God to take on, you cannot, because they thought that the flesh, the body was inherently evil and bad and the spirit was good, the body was bad. And so they were altering part of the Christian teaching. And so when a lot of early Christians heard about Jesus coming in the flesh, they couldn't handle it. So they, instead of just denying it altogether, they like modified it. And so Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He just came in the appearance of flesh, kind of a, a phantasm or a hologram or some type of like ghost he fooled everybody. So, so he looked human. He looked human. He, he acted like he him. had a body. He didn't really, he wasn't really born of a virgin. He didn't really suffer. God could not suffer. He didn't really die. No way God could die. Um, he just came in the appearance of the flesh. So, so how does this verse kind of confront that truth, right? Because the, the church went, eh, docetism, false. And I'm sure they pointed largely to this passage. Yeah, well, I think if for us, especially in our current cultural moment and our place in history, thinking about God, Jesus as God is controversial. Everyone is kind of fine with Jesus being human, but it's controversial that Jesus is God. Whereas in the first century, it's basically probably the opposite. Everyone is fine with God existing. Uh, there wasn't a ton of pure naturalism, but they were, thought it was radical that Jesus come in the flesh. And so John carefully saying like, the word was with God, he was God, and he takes on flesh. And so it's a very clear teaching that it's not he took off his divinity and became human, but he added humanity to his divinity. And so he's truly God, truly human, both at the same time. And, and that was just, just like it's confusing and unfathomable now. It was confusing and unfathomable then. But now our modern solution is to deny his divinity, but the old solution was to deny his humanity. Yeah. And so trying to hold those things together. So, so as we think about the divinity part, we're kind of in a different place. But it's interesting because as you and I have been talking over these last months, we're seeing a kind of rise in functional docetism in terms of where this came from was that the, the spirit was good, the soul was good, but the body was bad. Yeah. And um, we're now increasingly kind of in an age that sort of goes, hey, your body is whatever. Yeah. What matters is your mind. What matters is what you think. What matters is what you think you are, yeah. how, you self, how you conceive of yourself, how your body is, is sort of unimportant. Yeah, our, our present culture, the way that we think about, especially issues related to gender and gender identity, this is part of the reason that we added a statement on gender identity to our doctrinal statement, is this, is what I would consider a docetistic view, that if there's incongruence between the mind and the body, the answer is to change the body because the body is worse than the mind. And that this, this whole recognition that the flesh is bad, it's inconsequential, it's basically just a pleasure receptacle, so what you do with it, how you chop it up, how you alter it, the way that you you present it 
is irrelevant because what really matters is only what's between your ears and the way that you feel about what's between your ears. And so you cannot have um, our current uh, gender identity revolution or cultural moment apart from this duality between my, bind, um, mind and body uh, and separating those two things. And you can also not have their current cultural moments um, like the, the LGBTQ stuff, apart from recognizing that what I want and how I feel my spirit is more important than my body. And so this idea that psychology is trumping biology is docetistic, rather than a unity and these things are meant to be congruent and go together. So I think that our current cultural moment is maybe not walking around denying the, the fleshness of Jesus, but we're walking around denying the fleshness of humans. And I think in particular, even the coronavirus, I think is gonna make this stuff worse because there's all of this appearing in the flesh to one another by means of screens and phones and Zoom and calling it the same and pretending like it's interchangeable. Uh, so we're always in the appearance of the flesh to one another by means of technology. And so this idea that what's really you is like what you say and what you think, not necessarily who you are in, in your body is, so I think that's just gonna accelerate. So while it's a good gift of God to give us this technology to be able to connect with people, the danger might be that we start to think it is a one-to-one -one replacement and embodied relationships are just not that big of a deal. Yeah, like I think that you know, watching church online is an excellent replacement for nothing. An excellent replacement for nothing. Like if the answer is tune online replacement or- Replacement for nothing, you mean it's better than doing nothing? Yeah, I mean, if the answer is watch- No, it's not a good replacement for anything. Oh yeah, no, yeah, it's better. If the, if the, if the options are watch online or do nothing, watch online is tremendously better sure. than watch online. But I do think there's a long-term, that if we start to think that you can do church online, that's just not true. Like that's, it's like you can't, like when I FaceTime my wife when I'm out of town, right. it is a better than nothing replacement for the real thing which is being present yeah. in the flesh. So now I could hear someone thinking, well that's great because you're young and you're healthy and you're not at a kind of risk. And hey, I thought you told me to stay home yeah. and experience this online because I have conditions and health challenges and different things, like which is it, man? Are you telling me that I'm sinning or I'm doing something wrong now because I'm watching this online? I don't think that's what you're saying. No, absolutely not. And I don't think this is, I don't think this is like a, a faithfulness issue for us as a church right now. And those of you who are watching online, I'm, I'm glad you're able to do it. And I in no way want to say you, those of you online ought to be here. But I think in a year from now, if we find ourselves, maybe two years from now, I don't know how long this whole thing's gonna exist. Or, you don't know? I don't know, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know Maybe it's a year from now, two years from now, if we find ourselves saying, I'll just do church at home because it's convenient, I do think that is, that, that will become a problem. And so I don't think it's a discipleship issue for us right now, but I think it certainly will be in 2021, 2022, some point. And it's even like in the past when we've talked about, should we do live streaming? I've been a hard no vote until there was a global pandemic and now, I've, now I'm a yes vote. So <laughs> for, for that exact reason. Yeah. 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 yeah, great. So our minds matter and our bodies matter. Yeah. And Jesus dignifies that by coming in the flesh. Yeah, he, he cancels once and for all the view that to be in a body is a curse. Yeah. And that even after Genesis 3, even after the fall, even after this, the stain of sin on the world, having a body is still good and it's still full. Well, and our long-term future is not a disembodied spiritual heaven. It's a physical resurrection on a new heavens and a new earth. Yeah. We will be embodied forever. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that's cool. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. I actually have goosebumps as I think about that. That's awesome. All right. Back to timeout. Back to right, the, cool. the timeout. <laughs> All right. Let's look at the second part of this big idea. Is that in Jesus, God came near as an embodied revelation of his steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, it says, For from his fullness, that's out of the abundance, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So again, you get this phrase, grace and truth, in verse 17. It was in verse 14, we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm learning about myself. I have a limit of how much patience I have, how much kindness I have. And I know the Lord tells me I need to like, pray for my enemies, but my prayer is usually like, Lord, blind them. <laughs> right? That, that, and I don't think that's what Jesus meant. <laughs> But I just, I got, a, I got a limit. I got a limit of patience. I got a limit of self-control. I got a limit of kindness. I got a limit of those things. Isn't it good news that God doesn't have a limit? Look at verse 16. For from his fullness, he, he just has an abundance. Out of God's fullness, we've received grace upon grace. Now, that phrase grace upon grace is a really beautiful phrase. And in the Greek, you could literally translate it as grace instead of grace. Grace in place of grace. That, think about that for a moment. From his fullness we've all received grace instead of grace. In other words, we had grace and instead of grace we got more grace. We had grace, instead of that we, in place of that we, we got even more. And this is the kind of point of verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, if you just read verse 17 without the context, this is why we got to read the Bible in context. If you just read verse 17, what does it sound like it's saying? It sounds like it's saying, the law was given through Moses. Boo. Ah, boo. Law's bad. Moses, bad. Boo. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right, if you just read verse 17, that's what it sounds like. But we don't read just verse 17, we read verse 16 first. We've received grace in place of grace. What is that saying? That's saying that the law was grace. The way God revealed himself to Moses was grace. And in place of that, we get even more grace, Jesus. Look at how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says, we all live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift. We got the basics from Moses, and then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding, all this came through Jesus, the Messiah. See, this is a common myth, even in the church today, is that the Old Testament is bad because it's an angry God in the Old Testament, right? Like, we'll even have this expression. Maybe you've heard this. Someone will say, oh, man, he went all Old Testament on him, <laughs> right? Which is saying, oh, man, he lost it because that's how God is in the Old Testament. New Testament, oh, Jesus is really good. God's really kind. God's really loving. Eh. 
And this leads us to our next one. You don't have to sit there quite as long. So the next uh, false teaching from the early church that is still alive today is uh, Marcionism. Marcionism. So you're going to really impress your friends later this week. I mean, have you heard of docetism? I know what it is. Have you heard of... Now, Marcionism. What is Marcionism, Seth? So Marcy was from a guy, not a word, Marcy of Sinope, I think that's how you say that. But he, he basically took the Bible and chopped it up to make it fit his assumptions. So he cut out the whole Old Testament because in the Old Testament, God is angry and reactive. And in the Old Testament, um, it's, it's uh, legalistic, it's self-righteousness. And in the Old Testament, you have all this talk about um, creation and creation being good. And he, he chopped off the whole Testament and he rejected most of the New Testament. He pretty much only hung on to Paul's letters because if you misunderstand Paul's letters, it can sound like uh, the flesh is bad. But when Paul talks about the flesh versus the spirit, he's talking about your person insofar as it's out of line with the spirit of God, not necessarily like the body. Um, so he, he chopped up the Old Testament and chopped off John, first, second John. First John talks about we've, we've seen, we've touched, we've heard. Um, and even if you think about the way that Jesus gives us sacraments, now you taste and you smell. And so there's this five cents thing. But um, Marcion taught that there's this eternal battle between good and evil. So it's called like the, the old dualism. That's not like creation's good and then sin taints a good creation, but it's that there's this eternal yin-yang thing happening, good versus evil. Mm. And that caused him to say that this good evil thing is the good is the spirit. So it's similar to autism, like the spirit and the, is good, but the, but the evil is the flesh. And so he unhitched the Old Testament from the New Testament and unhitched a whole bunch of the New Testament stuff from um, part of the writings and did away with all that because he kind of bought, he misread the whole Old Testament thinking that people were saved by works to a reactive, angry God who couldn't possibly be Jesus. So he was kind of trying to believe in Jesus, but trying to not believe in the whole Bible in the way that tells you about yeah. Jesus. Well, and, and like uh, on the positive side, there, there were plenty of people who thought the Old Testament provided this list that if you could check off, you could experience salvation, yeah. right? That you could be saved through works. And, and the Apostle Paul just is clear about that, that, that the wages of sin is death. Uh, the law, when you try to use it as a way to earn your salvation, it only shows you that you can't and you need Jesus. So, so in that sense, the, the, the gospel obviously in that sense trumps the law, but we have to say that, that the Old Testament is still part of God's word and it's still good. And we don't have the ability to just sort of chop it up and, and say, well, no, we don't like that part. Yeah, if you see the law as the creator, Lord of the universe, giving instruction to his children about how to live in that universe, yeah. then it's, it's revelation, it's wisdom, it's guidance. It's not just arbitrary um, revised statutes that have been put together by strangers somewhere else, but it's a father telling his children how to live in the place that he's created. Yeah. And so it's fundamentally a blessing. And even in Genesis, when it says God blessed them and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, that, that the law is a grace and that it's a blessing. It is teaching us how we ought to be living. And yeah. it's like if you try to play a sport you've never played before and you don't understand the rules, sure. it's the, the rules are a blessing that now you know how to play, the, play correctly. And so it's similar that the law is grace, but then also um, grace and truth through Christ is grace. We shouldn't see the law as a curse. Yeah. Any other thoughts, uh, Seth, on just kind of how Marcionism looks today? I mean, no one would call it that. No one would say, hey, I'm a Marcionite. Well, I think, but yeah. how would it look? <laughs> well, I do think that anytime we kind of buy into the view that the God of the Old Testament is just a reactive, angry person, um, which I think most, like if you talk to a lot of non-Christians, there's a view like, well, I, I like Jesus, but that Old Testament thing is just throwing me off. I think both for our sake of witnessing the non-Christians, trying to rightly understand the, the Old Testament and the fact that there's not a reactive, angry God, but there's actually, a, a, that Jesus is 
the, the pre-incarnate Jesus, the pre-in-the-flesh Jesus is the same God in the Old Testament and that he's there. Um, I think the other thing for us is that we, if, if we as Christians find ourselves resistant to the Lord's law, because we're like, I don't like the way that I don't, you know, I don't want to be, we, anytime we call any obedience legalism, you know, I don't want to be legalistic, which what we're saying is I don't want to obey God. Uh, it can be a pretty, a pretty hmm. dangerous place to be. Yeah. And, and so I think that even Marcion is not necessarily reacting to the Old Testament. He's reacting to the ways some Jews understood the Old Testament. That a lot of people nowadays think that Christianity is legalistic because, not because they've read the Bible, because they're reacting to the way that some Christians act. Yeah. And so I think that we're tempting our non-Christian friends uh, to be Marcionites yeah. when we actually embody like legalistic cultures and we, we're judgmental and dismissive. Yeah. yeah, great. You can stay here because I just have one more thing I want to say before we go to the Lord's supper. And that's verse 18. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Moses got as close as you can get to seeing God, but did he see him? No. That's the point. No one's ever seen God, even Moses. But the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Here's what this means. The only way for any of us to know God is through Jesus. The only way. God has come near. God has been on a rescue mission. God has seen the way we've broken his world. And he's not content to leave it alone. And he's not content to just condemn it all. But he sends his son to save it, to redeem it, to forgive it. Our only hope, your only hope, your only hope watching online is Jesus. You will not know God apart from him. And Jesus has come to make God known. That's what we're going to look at for a lot more time, but let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, the word who became flesh. God, we pray that we would see Jesus as he came, fully God, fully man, that we would experience the dignity of the human body and how it's part of how you make us. And God, that we would see that you are a good God from beginning to end and that we would experience faith in Christ. God, as we come now to the table, to the Lord's Supper, uh, we ask you, Father, to meet us in these elements that we would experience a God who came physically and that we would experience Jesus again spiritually through these physical elements. We pray in Christ's name, amen.